I'm Erin Delmore, and as we work, we're wondering how to take the next steps in our careers, whether we're looking to move up or move on, or stay the course in this uncertain economic environment. What can I do to better promote myself and increase management's awareness of me so I'm well-positioned for advancement opportunities? I'm having trouble getting other industries to take a look at my resume. How can I balance discipline with micromanaging my own time? This is As We Work from The Wall Street Journal, a show about the changing workplace and everything you need to know to navigate it. Because here's the thing, the workplace is changing, and figuring out what to do about it can have big consequences. So we asked two of our friends from The Wall Street Journal's Life and Work team for help answering your questions. That's coming up. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude. Let's face it. The economic picture right now? Well, it's complicated. On the plus side, the latest numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics show that there are still more than 10 million job openings that companies are trying to fill. Unemployment is still low, just 3.7%. And consumers are still spending. Check this out. Between Thanksgiving and Cyber Monday, consumers spent more than $35 billion, according to Adobe Analytics. You can bet that's a record. But... Many of us are still struggling with inflation. It's at its highest point in decades. The Federal Reserve is trying to tamp inflation down by hiking interest rates, which means things like car loans and mortgages cost more. Some experts are predicting a recession in the next year. And right now, we're seeing the marquee tech companies laying off workers in droves. So what does it all mean for you? On today's show, you sent in your questions and told us what's on your mind about your changing work lives. Now... We're answering them with two star members of the Wall Street Journal's life and work team, who also happen to be two good friends of the show. Rachel Feinzig, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. And Callum Borchers, we're so glad to have you back. And I'm very glad to be back. Thank you. What are you seeing in your reporting about how workers are feeling in today's economy? I think it was only half a year ago that I was writing about how it was difficult to get fired in this economy. And I don't think that feels nearly as true anymore. And so if you take that short-term memory, it can feel like, oh, my goodness, things aren't as good as they were you know, just a short time ago. And I think that's true. If you take a longer-term memory, you say, well, think about where we were just a few years ago. Many workers would say, well, listen, my compensation is higher than it was a few years ago. Even with inflation in there, they're maybe in a better financial state. A lot of people had a lot of savings they could rack up during the pandemic because they just weren't going out and spending as much as they used to. And then I think a lot of folks, too, just have a lot more flexibility in when and how they work. You know, it's interesting. I don't think this feeling that we developed during the pandemic of wanting more wanting flexibility, wanting to work remotely, thinking differently about what role work plays in our life and how central it is to our identity. I don't think that stuff is going away, even as people, of course, acknowledge that these are uncertain times and their jobs don't feel quite as stable and guaranteed as before. We saw mass layoffs. We saw them at Twitter, Meta, Amazon, Coinbase, Stripe. Put it into context for us. 
Is this confined to just one sector? Are workers in other industries feeling the changes? No, it's not confined. I mean, the tech sector certainly grabs a lot of the headlines, largely because they've been some of the biggest scale layoffs, right? I mean, you see 11,000 workers let go at Meta, for example, and that really gets attention. But it's not the only business sector. You know, I was looking at some labor statistics to see where other notable declines uh, from where we were just a year ago, let's say. And two that stood out to me are construction and healthcare. And that sort of makes sense, I think, if you sort of put it together, right? There was a lot of building going on at the height of the pandemic. Also, now, if you're worried that a recession could be coming. Maybe construction is a place where you scale back. So we have seen more layoffs in the construction sector in recent months. Um, you know, in healthcare, you know, again, for obvious reasons, at the height of the pandemic, it was this scramble, right? And so it's not a, it's not isolated to the tech sector, but that certainly does get attention for obvious reasons. I was looking at some data, too, from Challenger, which is an outplacement firm. And they also listed auto as being a sector where there were some layoffs and real estate, which kind of dovetails with, with um, Cal's point about construction. And then one other thing I wanted to say about tech is the numbers, like Cal said, are shocking. But I think I think there's also a sense they're shocking because a lot of these people have not lived through this before. These were jobs that were cushy, that were protected, where people were, you know, throwing perks at these folks. And I think it's been really just it's just shaken a lot of people to have to live through this. So let's get to those questions from listeners. Here's one from Bree Jackson in Oak Park, Michigan. She told us she was recently laid off. I'm a mortgage underwriter. Mortgage underwriting is such a niche profession. So I'm having trouble getting other industries to take a look at my resume. How would I present myself as having skills that are translatable to other industries to the point where I'm able to even get my foot in the door um, or get my resume reviewed in industries where I believe I would be successful and competent? Rachel, what advice would you give Bree? One thing I've been reading recently from experts is, you know, really thinking about your accomplishments, writing it down right away when you have those things fresh in your mind, the big projects you worked on. And I think you want to frame it in really almost basic language, especially if you are thinking about switching industries. You want to kind of cut through any industry jargon and just really break it down in simple language so that anyone could understand what a win this was. That way you're kind of showing your skills, showing how successful you can be in a way that's not relegated to something super specific to your industry or to your last job. Because even if you stay in your industry, you know, there's a chance that you're going to have to pivot a bit and switch to a different kind of role. So maybe it doesn't matter exactly what those wins are, but the fact that she's racking up wins is enough to stand out if she wants to change career tracks. One way to approach it is to think about what was the problem that I solved? How did I solve it? And then what was the benefit to the company? And again, it's just kind of a nice little sandwich where you're you're not kind of spinning around in circles during an interview and you can kind of make a really concise argument as to why you are really good at what you do. So as I think about your situation there, Bree, I'm thinking about how maybe you can frame your experience and your skill set a little bit more broadly. You know, as, as you say, mortgage underwriting is a very specific kind of niche profession, um, but perhaps you can frame your skill set as more of a data analyst, which might have, you know, applications across multiple industries. And I bet there's going to be a lot of workers in that position right now, right? If you are laid off in one particular sector, do you have a skill set that translates well to some other place that's still hiring? Cal, you might have a future as a uh, resume writer or editor over there. <laughs> well, you know, it just, just comes down to framing, I guess, right? I mean, you know, I think that when you're looking at what your resume is and where you can tout those wins, as Rachel just said, I mean, what are the things that you accomplished in your last position? And I think that for some companies, they're just looking for people who are going to work hard and stand out among their peers. I'm thinking about whether we can deploy that argument a little bit earlier. 
So when you can tell that layoffs are in the air, you don't know where they're going to come down, whose job is going to be cut. Is there anything that you can do to prepare for layoffs when you sense they're on the horizon? One is probably always good advice to just be preparing financially to have some savings so that you and your household can weather a layoff if it comes down to that. You don't want to be in a panic and say, well, how am I going to make the next mortgage payment or buy the groceries next week? I think another thing, too, uh, I spoke with a man recently who was telling me about just some very frank conversations he was having with his manager about what the likelihood were of layoffs within their company, which departments might be impacted. And none of this was set in stone, but trying to get a feel. So I think that's an opportunity to do some internal network. Do you have people higher up from you that you can trust and go to and kind of get a sense of what might be coming down the pike? And then the last thing that reminds me, too, is I had a conversation with uh, a woman who told me after just starting a brand new job recently that she didn't think she would survive another round of layoffs at her company. And so she basically said, it's time for me to jump and find something new before that axe falls on me. Callum, the one thing I would add is external networking. This is a good moment to be in touch with people. You can reach out to people you haven't talked to for years. And it is possible, and I think it's a good moment to do that. You can reach out to people and ask them how their back-to-work transition is going. If you're in tech, you can ask how people are faring with layoffs. Just just start these conversations. It never hurts. You never know when that next lead is going to come to you. And even if you don't get laid off, maybe you will just find something better and more secure. I think now is a really crucial time to be having those conversations. And here's a tricky one, right? Because it's so emotional and there's so much vulnerability and and angst involved in layoffs. But if you're not one of the people who's been laid off in your company or in your division, how can you be a good colleague to your coworkers who are going through a really tough moment? That can be something that weighs on on people as well, just as much in some cases as the people who actually are on their way out the door. And I think that that's something um, that companies need to be mindful of, too, as they go through that transition. It's not just, you know, the people that you've disappointed by having to to give them that pink slip, but also, you know, just kind of remembering there's going to be kind of a mourning period, I guess. I don't think it's too extreme to call it that, kind of a mourning period among the people who do stick around um, for the people who they lost. I think in the short term, I mean, oftentimes people... People are so distracted. They can't really work for a few days. I think it really is one of those like emotions in the workplace kind of moments where managers have to be really communicative, have to really reassure people. And the employees who are left have to be kind of gentle with themselves. I mean, you obviously, you should be on high alert and doing a good, a really good job because the company is obviously having some difficulties and you don't want to be next. And yet, if you find yourself being distracted, especially in those early few days, I would just say that's totally normal. You're a human. Like, that's how most people would feel. We'll hear more from Callum and Rachel as we tackle burnout, mid-career pivots, and how to get ahead in a hybrid environment. That's next. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. This was the year of the quiet quitting conversation, when it got really loud, prompting us to unleash our feelings about ambition and hustle culture. So Rachel, you've been writing about how to grow your career without sacrificing the rest of your life. How do we do it? 
<laughs> I mean, I think the first question is, is it possible? And Can we? Um, you know, I think in, <laughs> in many cases, yes. In some cases, no. Um, I think it's about picking and choosing where you kind of exert that power, f- testing the boundaries and seeing what what you can get away with. I think workers are often surprised that things that were just so hard for them and they hated about their jobs, when they stop doing it, oftentimes no one cares. I'm talking about things like keeping on top of every email. There's other things in your role that are non-negotiable that your boss is going to like talk to you about if you, if you skip out on. So I think it's all about kind of figuring out where you can exert that power and take that flexibility. If you can't work from home five days a week, can you just head out of the office early on Fridays? Is anyone going to be there to care? So yeah, I think of it as a series of mini experiments to see what works in your role. Cal, what do you see? You know, a recurring theme that comes up in my own conversations with with workers and I also relate to is this idea of trying to have it all, but not necessarily all at the same time, right? I think that if you take a long view of your career, and I'm working on this myself, Erin, is trying to think about it, how it goes in chapters. I was reflecting on this, for example, around election time. So in a past life, I was a political reporter and, you know, you miss the energy and excitement of election season at times, but what you don't miss are the long, grueling, unpredictable hours that come with that. As a younger reporter, that was something that I really leaned into, and that was a chapter of my career to chase that kind of thing. Now, as a dad with four young kids, I'm grateful to have a little bit more balance in my life. And then the pendulum may swing again as they get older. I want to pivot now talking to productivity, because I know that this is something that is uh, being measured. It has a lot of employees on their toes thinking, what does my employer know about me? And um, we had a message from Christian Abelkoris. Seems like he's thinking a lot about how he manages his time. Let's hear from him. I work as an engineer in supply chain. Since months ago, I've started to worry about how to manage my time on micro level. My notion is that I have to dispel these kind of thoughts upon micro time management. And the point is, how can I balance discipline with micromanaging my own time? Rachel, you've written about productivity and you've taken a a turn on it talking about our obsession with productivity and the benefits of doing less. Well, oftentimes we do better when we do less. I mean, there's a lot of research showing that a smaller chunk of really focused time followed by downtime is a really smart way to work. And we've all had those moments where we're just trudging through our afternoon and feel like we're wading through mud and we're not getting much done, you know, where we could get the same amount of work done in an hour when we were just really fresh. I think a lot of this is about figuring out when you do your best work, if you're able to have any of that flexibility. I also think it's about matching your activity to the setting. I mean, it took me a while to realize this. I was freaked out. Then when I went back to the office, I wouldn't be able to bury my head in work the way I did before. And it was actually an expert, a professor I was interviewing for a story who made the point, maybe you don't want to do that when you're at the office. Maybe Mm. the point of being at the office is to get some face time, and that could actually be hugely valuable to your career and your organization. But I think you want to be really mindful of what you do best at home and what things can only be done in the office. Okay, we've got a question from Scott McFarlane. He's in Scottsdale, Arizona, and he works remotely. And he's got a question about hybrid equity. That's how people are evaluated, whether they're in office or remote. These last few years, I have not missed the antiquated in-office environment. However, I do have some concerns about whether my current modality of work will impinge on my career trajectory in any way in terms of exposure to upper management. 
What can I do to better promote myself and increase management's awareness of me so I'm well positioned for advancement opportunities? So Scott wants to make sure that his work is visible to upper management, even though he physically is not. Callum, what steps can he take? I think the first step is to say, what's my career goal? Am I happy to be a really productive individual contributor, or do I want to move up into management? This has been a common thread in a lot of conversations I've had with managers who've said, we can be fine with kind of out of sight individual contributors who are just, you know, they're, they're doing their, their work, they're really productive, and they don't necessarily need to get as much face time if they're happy with that role. But there is a ceiling for them in some cases. I mean, I'm thinking of um, the president of an accounting firm I spoke with, for example, who said, you know, don't think that you're going to become like the regional managing director one day by coming into the office one day a week. That's not realistic. So if you want to move into management, you need to get in here and show your face. And so if that's the goal is to move up into those management ranks, you might want to schmooze with the other managers who are already there. I also think there are things you can do if you're 100% remote. One of the suggestions I like that came from a career coach I, I spoke with recently um, is to have an ally in the office. So, you know, hopefully a friend, a colleague who will kind of vouch for you, who will keep you in the loop when there's a new project that comes out that's only kind of shouted across the cubicles, who will say like, oh, let's dial in Rachel. Like, I don't think she's here when there's some, you know, kind of like question or late breaking announcement that that comes up. That way you kind of have some eyes and, and ears on the ground that can keep you in the flow of information. That makes sense. You know, at the same time, we talk about hybrid equity, but working remotely is not a sob story. For a lot of people, it's the goal. Let's hear from Maggie McNamara from Cleveland. My question is, how can non-executive employees build on the momentum of the current labor movement by widening access to and permanently securing benefits like work from home, salary transparency, tuition reimbursement, etc., which have an equalizing effect on disadvantaged groups. Data shows that women are more likely than men to want to work remotely. And that's even more true for people of color. There are a variety of reasons, but many say they want to avoid the open racism and sexism they've experienced in the office. So, Rachel... What would you tell Maggie about how workers are finding success in permanently securing that work-from-home benefit and others? I think you have to go back to the business impact. You have to make it clear to your manager that this is benefiting the team. It's benefiting them individually. It's benefiting the organization as a whole, that it's not just a play for you to have a benefit, that it's really benefiting everyone that you've, and you can point to specific examples and specific data about how you have been doing such an amazing job, having so many wins for the company based on whatever benefit this is that that you've been enjoying. If they're not going to go for work from home full time, can I carve out some sort of a temporary experiment. I frame it that way and I say, let's try this for two months. You come with a solution, you come with a proposal, and you make it kind of a collaborative problem-solving discussion so that your boss is hopefully on your side as you try to figure this out. We have a question from Scott Treyweek from Arlington, Virginia. He says he likes his job, but he's worried about room for advancement. He's wondering the best way to grow his career. Cal, what do you say? Maybe the next negotiation isn't another salary bump. Maybe it's, hey, I, I'm, I'm really committed to this company. I want to keep advancing, but I think I need some continuing education. You know, would you support that? Would you help pick up the tab for my graduate degree or whatever the extra certification might be? I think we're seeing this maybe more in, in negotiations more broadly, right? Whether it's, hey, you know, what's really important to me is the flexibility to work from home, and I would be willing to yield some comp 
to go with that. Not everything is money, right? The raise isn't everything. And I think so some workers are going to get into a spot where you're negotiating what's important to you in your current job, whether it's that flexibility or, or you know, more education. Taylor Wade from Seattle, Washington, is thinking about something along the same lines. Let's hear. The biggest career decision that I'm facing right now is whether or not to go to law school. I really do think that I want to be a lawyer, and it's something I've thought about for a really long time. But I don't know if the cost, the time and lost earnings, and the dismal statistics around happiness in the field make it worth it. I think the first thing to look is statistics from some of the law schools that you're looking at. Where do people land? How much money do they make? How long does it take them to find a job? Where do they move around in their careers? A law degree can be a good thing and something that doesn't necessarily mandate that you have to go and work for a big firm and hate your life. Not that everyone who works for a big (laughs) firm hates their life, but you know, that's one potential outcome. Think about where you want to go. Why do you want this law degree? If you're really worried about being miserable in the future mental health-wise, what are some jobs where people have law degrees, but they don't seem miserable? You can look it up on LinkedIn. You can see if there's anyone in your network who's kind of traveled this path. Rachel, I love that you suggested asking these people those questions directly because I don't think it's crazy to reach out and ask folks. I mean, people can be very generous with their advice and say, hey, looking back, here's what I would have done or here's what I wish I would have known. Yeah, absolutely. Especially you're in such a safe place. You're just considering applying to a school. You're not even considering applying to a job yet at their at their company. And so I think because you're at the beginning, there's a lot less potential to like offend someone. And just to kind of candidly hear about their experience. People like to talk about themselves in this kind of a context, I have found. There is some golden advice tucked in there. And it's good to learn from Rachel that people like being asked to give their best advice. Because that's exactly what we're going to ask Rachel and Callum to do in our pro tip. Up next. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Time for our pro tip. Rachel and Callum, I want to ask you to think about your reporting from the past year. What's the biggest lesson you're taking away from this year, and how should it shape the way people think about their jobs next year? I would say rest when you can. Be really deliberate. Prioritize what is a good use of your time. Like Cal was saying before, you don't have to do it all at the same time. You just have to be smart about what matters to you in this moment. And I think it applies no matter what direction the economy goes in, right? Um You can still take the wins, take the flexibility where you can get them, and then go hard when you need to, especially if it comes down to keeping your job. I'm taking away the advice that I've heard from several career experts, which is to think about your side hustle or your potential side hustle and how much time you want to devote to it in 2023, right? Because so many folks have used the last few years to explore new hobbies. Maybe it is to pick up a side hustle that they hope to convert into their main gig sometimes. And look, as as a lot of people are worried about layoffs right now, like sometimes losing your job is just the little, you know, shove that you need to really mm. go after that new uh, adventure. So I, I'm not wishing unemployment on anybody, Aaron, but I'm just saying that this is a time when 
when people are feeling a little bit of economic uncertainty right now. Sometimes it's some career uncertainty. But at the same time, they may be thinking about that as an opportunity. And they've already been pursuing a side hustle. Or maybe there's something out there that they've always kind of wanted to do, and they haven't quite had uh, the nerve to try it. Callum Borschers and Rachel Feinsick, thank you both. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. Thank you. Good to be with you. Speaking of resting and coming back recharged, we're taking a couple of weeks off for the holidays. We'll be back with a bunch of exciting new episodes in the new year. Like the show? Tell your friends and subscribe. And go ahead and hit us with a five-star review on your favorite platform. As We Work is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Charlotte Gartenberg is our producer. Jonathan Sanders is getting married! And he's also our booking producer. Scott Salloway is our supervising producer. Jessica Fenton is our sound engineer. And our music was composed by Hansdale Sue. Special thanks to The Wall Street Journal's Maddie Conti and Gretchen Tarrant for their help with this episode. I'm Erin Delmore. See ya! This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.